Welcome to the Revelation Church podcast. We trust today's message will speak to you. If you'd like to get in touch, just drop us an email at hello at revelationchurch.org.uk. Well, morning, everyone. As Rich mentioned, my name is Andy. And today we'll be continuing our sermon series, which is titled Gracism. Uh, It follows the book by Dr. David Anderson. And as part of this series, we've been exploring the topic of diversity, race, ethnicity and inclusion. We've decided to uh, take our focus on how this impacts the church in particular, believing that God will use his renewed church as a means of bringing redemption in the lives of many within society. Uh, The series is titled Gracism uh, because it's the merging of a negative term, racism, with a positive term, grace. Uh, Racism can be defined as speaking, acting or thinking negatively about someone else solely based on the person's colour, culture or ethnicity. And grace could be understood as the unmerited favour of God on humankind. And so when we bring the two together, we get gracism, which is the positive extension of favour on other humans based on colour, culture or ethnicity. It's a beautiful term. Today's sermon title is I Will Share With You. And we're going to be covering three things. The first is a privileged culture. The second is living outside of privilege. And the third is sharing our privileges in light of the gospel. As part of this series, we've also been following a book in the New Testament, in the Bible, 1 Corinthians. It was the first of two letters that was written by the Apostle Paul, Uh, to a church in Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece. Uh, This church was a multicultural, diverse group of people. And the context of this letter is Paul writing to these people who had become divided due to the selfishness of its members, especially seen in those who have more influence. See, there were disputes, there was quarrelling, there were law cases... There was elitism, there was jealousy, there was strife, there was judgment, there was hypocrisy, there was pride, there was green, and then there was even the cases of incest. It was pretty messy. And Paul spends a great deal of his time at the start of his letter calling them to act in wisdom. He wants them to consider the way that they think about one another and ultimately to repent of their behaviours and be unified in the gospel. So we'll be continuing uh, from our reading, which was in the video, uh, which is from 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 27. um, And we'll be focusing specifically on verses 23 and 24 today. So I'll read those out again, just to remind us of them. And on those parts of the body that we think less honourable, we bestow the greater honour. And on our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honour to the part that lacked it. Now, in this passage, Paul uses this analogy of a body and its many parts being representative of the people that make up the church. Um, As we've covered in previous weeks, we saw in verse 13 that Paul introduces themes of culture and class when referring to Jews and Greeks, slaves and free. And what this does is it takes the subject of diversity in the church from a more general sense of view and moves it to a very deliberate link with race, ethnicity 
and unity. Now, this is particularly relevant for us today in our Western culture. As in recent months, there's been one of the most biggest global conversations around unfair biases in the world, particularly in regards to the subjects that we've just mentioned, colour, culture and ethnicity. You see, what we've found is how broad these issues affect different areas of life for those who are affected by it. It impacts their employment, their education, poverty, housing, the criminal justice system, healthcare, and even hate crimes. See, for these people, wherever they turn, there is a new hurdle that they have to face in life. Here's just a few examples. I am barely scratching the surface. To be honest, if I shared as much as I could, we'd be here all week. But just here's a few examples to kind of paint the picture. In the UK, black and ethnic minority workers are paid around 3.2 billion less than their white counterparts. That was the gender pay gap campaign in 2018. 46% of people in families where the household head is black are living in poverty, compared to 19% of those living in families where the household head is white. That's the Social Metrics Commission from, from this year. In the last five years, 38% of black and ethnic minority people said that they had been wrongfully suspected of shoplifting compared with 14% of their white counterparts. That was the ICM poll for The Guardian in 2018. And at a staggering 82%, race is the most commonly recorded motivation for hate crime in England and Wales. And that was released by the Equality and Human Rights Commission in 2016. Now, when we collect this data and, and a lot more that we've shared in previous weeks in our series, we cannot accept that these are just coincidental findings but in fact clear evidence of a world built to benefit some and not all. These numbers would not exist if they were a reality for some. The issue at hand today, the subject that we're focusing on, is the imbalance in how we as a church treat one another as a direct result of how society has shaped our thinking and acting. And sadly for, for most of us, this is a painful subject. And for others, they are completely unaware of what has followed them. So, why is it important to recognise these statistics and data and observations of society other than being aware of the obvious disparity? Because it demonstrates that the views we hold in society will change the way that we perceive and treat others. It affects the way that we think and therefore how we act whether that's consciously or not. Now, my skin is a little darker than my white counterparts. My family originate from Iraq. Unfortunately, I have to say, I'm one of the lucky ones. Compared to a lot of my black friends, I've not had to face as much as they have. But I too have struggled at times to figure out where my place is in society. I too have been made to think and act differently in order to fit in. I remember the first time when I came to Camden, I was 14 years old. I was... <sighs> Sorry. I was with my 12-year-old brother. Um, we'd just come off the escalator. And we got shoved to the wall by the police. 
and they conducted a drug search. <sighs> I didn't realize this was going to hit me as much. <laughs> Apologies. Uh, in my late teens, I consciously changed the way that I spoke and presented myself to be more accepted amongst my white peers and to get further in life. And in my early 20s, I felt embarrassed to tell people that my parents were Iraqi refugees. Because a lot of the time, what I got was shock, followed by questions of, but you were born in the UK, right? But you're British, though. See, a lot of this, for me and for many others who can relate, has left us feeling confused about how we identify culturally and ethnically. A common denominator for those who feel like they're living in a system that seems to be biased against them is that they feel the need to either adapt or hide who they are. If you fall anywhere outside of the default mold that society presents to you, it will drastically impact the way that you see the world and yourself, which ultimately affects the way that you act and how you expect to be treated. Now, all that this does is demonstrates that there are certain honors, special treatment that follow some in society, which eventually will infiltrate the church. As the author Dr. David Anderson in his book explains, there are some of us who just don't get a piece of the pie. So we come back to Paul and the church in Corinth. Um, here we have a people group where some have been treated with greater modesty, respect, and privileges. Um, they've been given the special treatment. And Paul recognizes this as the root of their obvious division. He calls for radical reform, as we see in verses 23 and 24. He charges those most presentable parts, or as it's translated more accurately in the original Greek, those who have comeliness, or those who are more abundant, to bestow the greater honor on the parts that lack it. See, Paul spots that there is this elitist bias in the church that needs to be addressed and corrected. And these same biases are not too far from home. As we saw it happening in Corinth, we see it happening here today. If consciously or unconsciously we accept certain, the certain structures in society, we allow them to play themselves out within the church. We may treat others with more respect simply based on their wealth or their knowledge or their influence. We may take more of a liking to them and neglect others because of our skewed standards. You might even begin to formulate a stereotypical picture of your brothers and sisters at church without even getting to know them. You may give special treatment to where people sit, whether they're recognized for their contributions. You might not even welcome someone out for lunch or even to your own home for the fear of the awkwardness of the unknown. Uh, the word I mentioned before, comeliness, it translates as this picture of beauty, attractiveness, wholesomeness, someone that is desirable and pleasurable to be around. And what this does is it assumes that those who do not have such privileges may be seen as the opposite. Undesirable, ugly, weak, a waste of space, a nuisance, uninteresting, unintelligent. 
I wonder how many of us in the church have been made to feel like that. I wonder how many of us in the church have made others to feel like that. Without a doubt, for too long, we've been subject to this privileged mindset, both in society and in the church. Which leads us on to part two, living outside of privilege. Now, Paul's heartbeat in this letter to the church is to act in accordance with the gospel, to look to and imitate Jesus. And what he does is with his words is he's undoing some of the cultural narratives in the church regarding privilege and influence and power, and he does so by reframing their minds so that they not only act differently, but that they genuinely care. I don't know if anyone else picked up on this in verse 23, the emphasis. And on those parts of the body that we think less honourable. That we think less honourable. He's directing them to their thinking. Because our thinking shapes our beliefs. And our beliefs will affect our actions. It's a simple equation. Think, believe, act. Paul starts his letter appealing to the church right at the start of this letter that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. I thought it was beautiful what Lauren and David brought in terms of their words, that we set our minds on what is true, that belt of truth, that the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds. Now this is especially relevant for us today in the Western part of the world where we live in a part of society that heavily favours the individual's autonomy. It's about your rights. It's about your views. It's about your preferences and your entitlements. You see, if this is true, then we'll not only think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, but we will also flinch at the prospect of considering someone else's needs before our own. I wonder how many people have been offended by the BLM movement simply because of a deeply ingrained way of thinking that puts themselves first. We need to see that this is not just an issue for the individual. It's not just an issue for those who are black or brown or Asian or anywhere in between. This affects all of us, especially for the church. And that's why Paul leads us to this provocative image of a body No one in their right mind would neglect a part of their body that is hurting or in need of support. If we were to break our arm, we would use the other one to support it. We would probably use our legs to move towards medical help. We would use our eyes to to scour the scene. And then we'll use our mouths to communicate what's going wrong. You see, right now, there is a part of the body of Christ, part of the church that requires more honour, that requires more abundance. Okay, I've got a story. Sorry if I start crying on this one. <laughs> um, a few years ago, me and my wife were on the receiving end of this love. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> um, we both come from poor upbringings. Uh, my wife from a working class background. 
and my family essentially funded by government benefits. Um, and we both come to this crazy thought, what would it look like if we bought a house? You know, we were passionate about London. We're passionate about this church. We want to stay. There's no inheritance, no bank of mum and dad. We work hard, we pay our bills, we give a little to church and we put a little to the savings. But to be able to get a place in North London of all places would require a miracle. That was not until a friend sat us down and offered us some of their own personal savings. That person grew up in a wealthy family, had a highly paid job, had access to a lot more in life than we did. But they shared their power and influence with us. It's funny, when I was thinking about this, I was like, what story could I use as an example to demonstrate this type of way of, of life? And I couldn't think of anything else. This is the only time in my life where someone in a more privileged position helped me out. It's important to say that this person also is a friend. They've shared moments of life together with us. They they know our dreams, they know our history, they know our joys, they know our failures, they know our struggles. They made a decision based on knowing us. They didn't just swoop in as functional saviors. The way they saw it was that they were sharing with themselves, that we were one body. I know this is an extraordinary example, but in its simplest form, what it says is that friendship is a safe place for us to get to know one another, especially as it's foundational for us to be able to show and attempt to share privileges, even if some of those attempts are clumsy and imperfect. I wonder in recent months, have we been surprised by the heartbreaking stories that people have shared? Or are we more surprised that we didn't really know them at all? Now, I'm not saying that we have to bear every burden or pain as soon as we've met someone. But what it does suggest is that there's a knowing between us that when one part of the body suffers, the others are aware. And part of that means that sometimes we may need to sacrifice our comfort for the benefit of the community. You know that picture I said of a broken arm? The other arm has to support it, and maybe even for an extended period in order to alleviate the pressure and the pain, this arm feels it just as much. Are there areas in your life where you can sacrifice your own comfort, your own influence, your own power, your own privileges for those who would otherwise not have it? There there are varying levels that our influence can have. It's not always the case of the rich and the 
and you know, the luxurious, we all have, to some degree, influence and power in people's lives. How will you live outside of that? Which leads us to our final point, sharing our privileges in light of the gospel. See, our friend's motivation for using their influence and Paul's motivation to the church in Corinth was not a desire to feel good about themselves. And it wasn't even a desire to see society as a better place. It was fueled by an understanding of the gospel. And this is, as Dr. David Anderson puts in his book, is the primary answer to our racial biases in society and the church. As he puts it, racism is not a skin problem, but a sin problem. Paul writes in another letter of his in Philippi, it's great because people were quoting just before and after this. Have this mind among yourselves. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, the gospel puts everyone on notice. Guess what? We have all offended God. We have all acted in a way that says we're privileged, that says we deserve better, that says we're entitled to whatever we want, regardless of what you say, God. And as the Bible says, we have all sinned and fallen short of the the good and glorious and righteous standards of God. And with that, there is a debt. If God is good and holy and just, he must deal with that sin. The punishment is death. And yet this is what is beautiful about the gospel. This is what is beautiful about the good news, that God, being the righteous and the just, the one with the greatest modesty, the one with the greatest honour, the most presentable, makes himself nothing. He takes our place. He takes our shame, our guilt. He bears our penalty. God deals with the unjust with love. As Paul writes in his second letter to the Corinthian church, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. In the gospel, Jesus has already set the standard. His example is the blueprint for how those who are in positions of privilege and power and influence should treat others. We should use our power for others. This doesn't mean that we're just going to sweep things under the rug and ignore them. In fact, what it does say is that the gospel puts a bright spotlight on everything that is unjust. And what it does is it pulls out a megaphone and says, God sees and he knows and he cares. And he's going to do something about it. And so for for the church, what that means is that we march It means that we stand for social reform. It means that we bring in legislations and laws. It means that we comfort and we listen 
It means that we learn and prefer others because of how God has treated us in the gospel. It means we give time and energy to the parts of the body that have less honour, that are overlooked, because Jesus has done it already with us. So brothers and sisters, today, will you show greater honour to the parts of the body that lack it? As David Anson puts it in his book again, living as a gracist is the refusal to accept special treatment if it is at the detriment of others who need it. If there's one thing that you remember from today, let it be this. Jesus shared with me, therefore I will share with you. Jesus shared with me, therefore I will share with you. So to conclude, let us not show partiality in the way that we think, as the Apostle James puts it in his letter, because we unknowingly fill our minds with judgmental and evil thoughts. Instead, let us think of the gospel and allow that to dictate how we treat others. You see, it's the story of God who willingly gives up his rights, faces humiliation and mistreatment, empathizes with the hurting and the brokenhearted. He bears their shame. He dies for their sin and is raised from the dead and brings us together in the newness of life. The gospel demands our obedience in the love of the body of Christ. You see, to live any other way would mean that we have not understood God's love in the gospel. Let us go forwards with the blueprint that is Jesus Christ to love our church and to love our world. I'm just going to hand back to Rich um, and then we'll be there. If you'd like to stand with me, uh, stand if you're at home. Um, I want us to, um, just before we sing um, another song, um, I want us just to, 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 to just pause um, and steady our heart before God. I know um, when, 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 when you hear um, a sermon that is so raw and so honest, um, it can be tempting um, given the subject, uh, I will share with you to, to, to jump, to skip a step and get to, okay, well, what do I need to do? Tell me what I've got to do. Tell me, tell, tell, tell me how I can share. Tell me how I can help. And, and, and as Andy shared, there are some very real practical ways that we can love, that we can share with one another. Um, I'm also very aware that a series like this, um, there isn't lots of opportunity to process with brothers and sisters. There isn't lots of opportunity to process with friends. It, it very often feels like we're, we're, we're uncovering these questions or processing these things in a vacuum. And, and, and I just want to say that's okay. Because actually, whatever action we take, whatever conviction of the heart, whatever movement God does within us, it, it mustn't, it absolutely mustn't come from a place of wanting to fix anything or wanting to, 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 to try and um, change something or, or, or manipulate something. It has to come from, from a transformation of the heart. Absolutely. 
And so even in this series, uh, even in these last few months, to be processing some of these issues that, that we're wrestling with as a church, to be wrestling with them in our own hearts, is the place to start. It's absolutely the place to start. And then when God gets a hold of our heart and transforms our heart, then the practicalities, then the actions follow. Because it doesn't come from a place of just trying to make a quick fix, put a, put, a, put a plaster over a gaping wound. It comes from a place of God having dealt tenderly with us, renewing our thinking, rewiring our brains, so that actually we move forward together so that we can, as Andy shared, have the grace to share with one another, but not from a place of we can do more or we can be better, but from a place of, of the <coughs> overflow of what God's done in our own hearts. And so we're going to sing, and as we sing, it may be that you just want to take this moment just to pause and reflect and search your own heart. In uh, Romans 12, it says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good, pleasing, and perfect. It may be just that as we sing, you want to reflect on that. But either way, we're going to gather and we're going to lift up our great and glorious King.